and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus, our brand-new subscriber section. Uh, more than 25 years, we produced a print magazine with so many great articles. Alexander Coburn's old work, of course, Jeff Sinclair's column, all of the great pieces over the years. But the economics of the time we live in have of course caught up to us. The magazine has been retired and sent off to the island of Misfit Magazines and we've replaced it with Counterpunch Plus. The subscriber stuff is of course all of the same stuff from the magazine plus additional features, columns, articles, investigative pieces, a lot more. You definitely need to check it out. Get your subscription. It's a great way to support Counterpunch and support independent media at a time when we desperately, desperately need it. So please Please do consider that. If you like my work, you can also follow and support me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Kreitzer. A lot more political commentaries, international stuff, a lot more stuff there. So do check that out. Okay. Very, very happy to speak with somebody whose work I followed for years at this point, but have never had on the show. Josh Fox is with me. Josh is, of course, known to all of you. Every single one of you has seen Gasland, the Oscar-nominated Emmy-winning documentary that really put Josh on on the map and made him public enemy number one for the gas lobby. We'll talk about it. Uh, his other works, including his the film The Truth Has Changed, many others. He is also the host of Staying Home with Josh Fox. Great, great show that you should be following. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Josh Fox Film and the website joshfoxfilm.com. Josh, welcome to Counterpunch. It's so great to be on. You know, I... Um... I, I read a lot of uh, Alexander Coburn's writing as a teenager, I guess, I think. I mean, um, in New York, I think it was in The Nation or in The Village Voice or in New York Press. And I was always a fan of the column. And, um, you know, it's great to be on, on Counterpunch uh, in its current form. Thank you so much. We're, of course, giant fans of yours and of all of your work, especially the kind of muckraking journalism that you're so known for. Um, I want to ask you, before we get into fracking and the energy lobby and all of these other issues, um, I want to just ask you, we're recording here on the evening of April 20th. It's 9 o'clock p.m., and it's just been a couple of hours since the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. So I wanted to just ask you, obviously, uh, all of the issues surrounding George Floyd, the Floyd Rebellion, the protests over the summer leading to this trial, uh, how would you describe your feelings now in the immediate aftermath of the verdict. Well, th thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to talk about that. You know, I um, uh, was in the car um, with my, my girlfriend, who's a, a park ranger, and we were on our way to run an errand. And all of a sudden, the, the on, comes on NPR that the, the judge is about to announce it. And I think we were just like, you had to hold your breath and pull over. <laughs> and when the guilty verdicts came in, I just, I, I, I started crying. I just, I don't know what, it was such a deep thing that was in there, the emotion of it. And I just leaned on the horn as hard as I could here in New Orleans. And uh, there was just an enormous feeling of relief and an outpouring that finally, um, you know, someone was convicted. Uh, I, I do think that the trial of one person is not the trial of the system that needs to happen. Um, I think this is accountability. I don't, I, I, I don't think that that means that's justice. I think justice is when we um, have uh, 
when we're stopped uh, being terrorized by the police in our neighborhoods, when they stop killing us, um, when they stop. Uh, and when I say us, I mean Americans. I mean black Americans first and foremost. I mean activists. I mean people of color. Um, I mean all of the hate crimes that are associated with the police. Um, and I, I think that we are in a moment in America right now where we are in the grips of a, a violent white supremacist terrorists. And that those violent white supremacist terrorists um, are obviously malicious uh, and, 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 and people who pick up a, 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 an AR-15 and walk into a FedEx or walk into a Walmart in El Paso. But they're also the police. Um, and I think the, the America has had a really amazing and long look at the origins of policing because of the uprisings over this summer that fit into this, you know, my entire life's worth of, of the civil rights movement. Um, and so, you know, uh, 50 years of the civil rights movement and longer than that, obviously. Um, so we, we have a lot of work to do in terms of creating real structural change. Um, I am an abolitionist in the tradition of Henry David Thoreau um, in the tradition of those who fought slavery. And so when people say, reimagine the police or defund the police, I always think, well, would you say reimagine slavery? <laughs> no, you'd sound ridiculous. Um, so for me, uh, and, and, and I've had a lot of liberals, specifically white liberals, attack me and say, oh, if you say abolish the police, that's a great way to elect Republicans. And I'm like, well, I don't really think I'm going to compromise my values and my stance um, uh, because that's an inner core. An inner core value is that we are in the midst of, an, of a racist system, uh, that the carceral state has to be dismantled, um, that it doesn't address violence. It doesn't address crime. It doesn't address, uh, uh, you know, making anyone safer. In fact, does quite the opposite. It reinforces a power structure of white supremacy that is um, destroying this country and destroying the planet because it has everything to do with our fossil fuel based system. Our values in America right now are simple. What our institutions dictate are the values of racism, greed, corporatism, fossil fuels, violence, um, competition. That's what America is right now. If we are to make it into the next century or even the next three or four decades, we have to try to change those values to things like resilience and anti-racism, equality, um, uh, innovation, creativity, renewable energy. Um, and uh, as I, Ron Kuby was on my show, um, uh, when we were staying home at one point, the great uh, defense attorney, um, he, he was said, I'm more concerned with the idea of mercy than anything else, which is fascinating to me. So we have to talk about mercy and justice in the same breath. And we have to talk about how our civilization right now is, a, is simply a system of, uh, of continued incarceration, racism, and, and degradation of the entire human population. But of course, manifest through the racist police force that is constantly shooting uh, black and brown people. Um, and, and, and also, by the way, I should say shooting white people too, which they shouldn't be doing, right? The police shouldn't be shooting anyone. <laughs> so in the, in the midst of this moment of, you know, this trial where we had uh, Dante Wright's murder, 
um, and a police officer coming out and saying, oh, it was an accident. Um, there is nothing accidental about this system. And unfortunately, uh, convicting, you know, uh, Derek Chauvin of the murder of George Floyd, which absolutely had to happen, may or may not be the beginning of, of, of real change. But it might do the opposite. It might justify the system and say, oh, see, system worked. We put away the murderer. Meanwhile, you know, three p people are being shot a day by the police force. So we can't let up. We have to continue to protest in the streets. We have to continue to be active. Um, and when I, you know, um, and we have to continue this outpouring of emotion for justice. So I think it all connects together. Um, this system is one of violence and one of murder. And whether that murder is in Iraq uh, for oil revenue or that murder is in the streets of Minneapolis or New York City, um, that is a system that is upholding the oligarchy and it has to be dismantled. Absolutely. And one of the things that you've done so much work on is in charting the course of, uh, let's call it right-wing ideology, right-wing uh, movements, and including disinformation. And you've kind of hmm. pinpointed, I would say, some of these processes over the last 20 years, certainly since 9-11, bringing us forward to today. And one of those uh, evolutions that I think we've all witnessed maybe on a slow boil has been the evolution of this sort of warrior cop mentality, mm -hmm. right? The Blue Lives Matter movement is sort of the outgrowth of this insane sort of worship of cops and, and first responder authority figures and all of these things, and soldiers and the military that has really peaked after 9-11. And in some senses, the, that 20 year period is typified by that. Well, I, you know, that's interesting because 9-11 is the starting point for my, my book and my, um, my performance and now film, The Truth Has Changed. Uh, I used to work in the Trade Center. Um, I was a gardener. <laughs> I was sort of a day, day worker as a, as a theater director and theater practitioner in New York City, um, making plays with my company, International Wow Company, which had you know, actors from all over the country and all over the world. Um, and uh, so I'd go to the Trade Center, you know, and, uh, you know, like... Uh, water the plants. Um, and luckily I was not there on that day. Uh, cause we used to have to go in early, early in the morning. And as a person who was born in New York city, grew up in New York city, the transformation that occurred, uh, with nine 11, um, you know, really what I think of happened was the colonization of New York city. We were told to go shopping. We were told to put American flags in our windows, which was so weird and anathema to anyone who's from New York. It was like, you really America here in New York? <laughs> you know, it was like that kind of thing. And then we realized that they really wanted it. They wanted New York. Um, they wanted it. Giuliani wanted it. Bloomberg wanted it. George W. Bush held the 2004 Republican National Convention in New York City. Um, and they got it. Um, New York is now the, the place of Wall Street. It is the place of big business and big real estate. Um, and it is much, much, much less the place of arts. It is still very much the, the most, the place of immigration and the most diverse city in, on the planet, um, which is why it has, an, an, you know, it's still New York. But, um, you know, we talk about like the, the, the ways in which, um, I mean, the ways in which we have, uh, decided to operate in the face of violence, right? In New York, we had the largest demonstrations against the Iraq war. My company, we were against the Afghanistan war. 
um, which I, I think very, very few people in New York were against at the time. <laughs> but we knew what was going to happen. We knew what that was about. We knew who was, who was trying to. Um, I think there was a play at the time which said, I know who the surgeon was, so I knew what, how the operation was going to turn out. Um, and the idea of Dick, Dick Cheney and George Bush invading Afghanistan, um, all of which is connected to you know, natural gas transmission lines, uh, similar to Iraq. The idea that we were going to create a war on terror <laughs> um, that was really just a guise for um, a, a fossil fuel uh, exploitation and extraction, neocolonialism um, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, throughout the Middle East. Um, and that at the same time, what these, same, what these people were doing was uh, passing laws to allow fracking to happen in the United States. Um, so all of this, uh, you know, the war on terror, the, the uh, war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the invasion of our backyard by the fracking industry, all of which comes from a very uh, militarized you know, point of view. And then you see protest um, encounter a militarization that I've never seen before in my life, right? Like, and I think that this became very, very clear to me at Standing Rock, uh, where I also made a film called Awake, A Dream from Standing Rock, which was a collaboration project with Native American filmmakers like Myron Dewey and Doug Goodfeather and also James Spione. Um, uh, we saw the kinds of militarization that was being used against the indigenous water protectors and the water protectors coming from all over the country. Um, and now we see that on every street corner. Uh, I also, you know, that was something that began... Uh, with not began, but you saw a, no, a really noticeable change in terms of the police reaction in, to Ferguson, to the Black Lives Matter movement in Ferguson. Um, and, uh, you know, so we have decided, or not we, let's just say, you know, what's happening in this country is we're getting a greater and greater environmental degradation. Um, we are having greater and greater social and economic inequality. Um, we're falling behind the rest of the world in every possible indicator in terms of healthcare and infrastructure and everything else, the country is falling apart. Um, and, and instead of addressing these ills from the standpoint of let's make society better for everybody, no, it's like, let's make more and more cops and let's heavily arm those police so that they look just like the guys who are running around in Iraq, <laughs> right? Um, and let's encourage, let's say the right wing is encouraging a deep racism in its its followers. They've gone full on racist. It used to be that you had Jesse Helms and George Bush and these people doing dog whistling. Obviously with Donald Trump, dog whistling was over. Um, and it was just encourage the racists, encourage the racists, encourage the racists. And when you see those Blue Lives Matter flags, you see them often right next to Confederate flags. You see them um, right next to big Trump banners. We're in trouble. We've got to start to heal these divisions. We've got to start to heal these divides. I don't know how we're going to do it, um, but it is a powder cake situation. But when you have, you know, two or three mass shootings a day right now, um, and you have three people being murdered by the police every day, and uh, yet the most militarized police are being uh, put out, uh, against protesters and you have RoboCop dogs in New York City patrolling the projects, we're seeing a very, very deep entrenched carceral state that, that is an authoritarianist, uh, fascist, that doesn't believe in science, that doesn't believe in wearing masks, that doesn't believe in climate change, that doesn't actually believe in American democracy, as we saw 
in the rate of the capital, right? Um, so it's a it's an extraordinarily dangerous situation, and I think a lot of that comes from twenty years of misinformation, propaganda, um, in ever more sophisticated ways, and the idea that we have to constantly, you know, give the police more and more and more and more. And I think an underestimated impact of all of this is the impact on children. Um, I just speaking from my own experience, try taking a child to a little league game in most parts of this country. And you're going to find that most of the parents are wearing paraphernalia, uh, referring to the kind of stuff we're talking about. Blue Lives Matter, Punisher skulls, uh, whatever it may be, all the various, you know, insignias of this sort of uh, uh, nascent or maybe it's not even nascent anymore fascist movement in this country. And I think that it's very easy to forget that like you know ferguson was seven years ago uh rittenhouse was what 11 when ferguson happened and then what oh. six years later he's murdering people on the streets in the name of the right wing you know um a lot of the year i live in this tiny little rural pennsylvania town called Milanville, pennsylvania which is the birthplace of all those films it's the delaware river basin it's the place where we protected and we banned fracking and we stopped the oil industry from despoiling, you know, you know, a, a watershed for 16 million people. It's one of the most beautiful, pristine, incredible areas. I encourage everyone to come visit, take a, a raft or a canoe or a kayak down the Delaware River, average four feet deep, never been a shipping channel, pristine, beautiful river of love. Go down the river, you know, um, get into that and understand that it was activism and people who loved nature that protected that place. But as you venture into Pennsylvania or in New York on either side, you'll see that it's also a community that was very deeply divided. Um, we won that battle. We had more people. But throughout rural America, you will find those Blue Lives Matter flags and you will find those very obvious symbols of hate um, and symbols of racism. And I, I, um, uh, my, I will say this about the rural areas. So my county, Wayne County, PA, up in the northeast corner, right on the border of New York State, there are no cops. There are like zero cops. You will not find a cop throughout most of the county. If you call a cop from your house, they won't come for an hour, an hour and a half. And yet, all over rural America, there are these Blue Lives Matter flags where there are no police. Where the police, if they do come to your house, tell you to buy a shotgun for self-defense, as happened to me, when there was an arson of, of, of a small building on my, our, my property, uh, was, which was by the people who were attacking us because of our stance on, on fracking, right? I was called a terrorist. I was called, oh, they blame the arson on us too, by the way. Um, I was called a terrorist. I was called an arsonist. I was called a communist. I was called a, a, a liar. Um, and that these, these, uh, these people who in 2010 we're pulling out the stops to say all that stuff about us when we were fighting for the pristine beauty of the area. And they wanted to frack it, you know, um, they wanted the oil money, um, which by the way, never materialized, especially in Pennsylvania, the oil companies were lying to the people. And as soon as they signed the leases, the oil companies came in and said, Oh, well, we're going to charge you a pipeline fee against your royalty, which by the way, is exactly how much money we're, uh, pulling out of the ground in, in terms of gas. So these, People who believed the oil industry got completely screwed by them um, in many, many cases. So the whole idea that they were going to make all this money, uh, that never happened. That was a lie. The oil industry was simply there to exploit them um, and get them to sign on the dotted line. So anyway, what I'm trying to say, though, is that it, it, it stopped being about fracking 
and started being about overt racism. And as a, 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 as a Jew, as a son of Holocaust survivors in that part of PA, you know, um, it's pretty scary to have white supremacists all around you. I grew up learning about Nazism because it was all my father came to this country in the fifties, his entire extended family, apart from his mother and father and two brothers were, were murdered by the Nazis. There were no, there was no one left. And so when you, when you grow up understanding how, where that cycle can lead, and then all of a sudden you have people with Nazi flags doing Zig Heil in the Capitol building, wearing sh sh shirts that say six, MWE, six million wasn't enough. It is the most chilling thing you can imagine. So the Republicans have invested heavily in this culture war. Um, and in that, at the end of that culture war is racism and violence. And it, 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 we have a, there's a term for it that I point out in my, in my film, The Truth Has Changed. It's called stochastic terrorism. Stochastic terrorism is use of political speech, um, often against a particular group or an individual, which is meant to incite violence. And you can, so when you have a person like Donald Trump creating this constant stochastic terrorism, preaching hatred, you are going to have incidents of terrorism, violent terrorism that pop up all across the country. You just don't know where they're going to happen. It's like sort of like popcorn in a, in a pan. If you turn up the heat, you know that some of those popcorn are going to pop off, but you don't know where or when, or which one exactly. You just know it's going to start happening. And that's what's going on in America today. And it's not just happening with the violent acts of terrorism that we see, uh, the mass shooters, but also with the police. Because often the police are on the side of those mass shooters. You had police officers from, th I think, um, dozens and dozens of different states who were there in the Capitol on the day of the insurrection, right? So this is terrifying. Um, I'm genuinely scared. Uh, because that's a, a, a percentage of the population that has become permanently divorced from reality. They don't. They want. They won't wear masks. They won't get vaccines. They don't believe in the germ theory of disease. They don't believe in um, uh, uh, science of climate change, and they don't believe that America is a democracy. Nor do they really want it to be one, because I think they know that in a democracy they'll lose, right? Because there's uh, they're being told that there's fewer and fewer and fewer of them. Right. So this is a very dangerous time and a very dangerous situation. Couldn't agree more. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit more about fracking, about some uh, important issues to be paying attention to on that front, and a little bit more about disinformation and some of Josh's other work. Stick with us on the other side of the break. We'll continue the conversation with Josh Fox. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Josh Fox. You should follow him on Twitter at Josh Fox Film. Of course, the show Staying Home with Josh Fox definitely needs to be in your normal uh, podcast rotation. So, Josh, I want to ask you, um, for, for a lot of us, your name rings a lot of bells. And I think, of course, of Gasland, the uh, Oscar-nominated and Emmy-winning documentary that you're probably most associated with. Mm-hmm. And I want to just ask you, to bring us up to speed a little bit because the movie is now pretty dated. It's been what, 11 years since it came out. So tell us a little bit about what has happened since then. I mean, the industry is not static. It's obviously changed, evolved. The technology has evolved. Financial questions have emerged. What should we be uh, following and knowing about the fracking industry today? Well, fracking unfortunately is being pushed all over the world. Um, and the Biden administration, like the Obama administration, uh, is pro-fracking. You have John Kerry saying things like natural gas is a bridge fuel, which is patently absurd because natural gas is actually worse for the climate than coal, coal being an awful, awful, awful fuel. But natural gas managed to displace it as the number one worst one for the climate for a couple of reasons. One is that the methane itself leaks into the atmosphere. So when you burn natural gas, you get a lot of carbon dioxide, and which is the principal offender in climate change. But you also get huge amounts of methane, the methane that gets released into the atmosphere. Methane is about 100 times more potent than carbon dioxide is as a warming agent. So when you sum total the methane and the CO2, it's actually worse than coal um, and it's expanding. Um, the Obama administration left us with a uh, their their plan was called the Clean Power Plan. That was um, uh, a misnomer. Um, it was actually a very dirty power plant. It was to take out old coal, but replace it with natural gas. Um, that is still very much what we're hearing out of the Biden administration. There's also another bigger problem on the horizon, which is that as America does, so does the rest of the world. And we're seeing uh, fracking um, being exported to de- de- the developing world as an energy panacea. Um, fracking in Argentina, fracking in uh, in South America, fracking in the Amazon, fracking in un- Uh, Most disturbingly, perhaps the Okavango Delta in Namibia, um, one of the last pristine elephant wildlife preserves in the world now has a brand new fracking rig by a Canadian company with the absurdly colonialist name Recon Africa, if you can believe that's the name of their company. Um, And they're fracking on indigenous sand people's lands in Namibia, uh, something I really want to cover, but I haven't been able to obviously get out there because of COVID. but, uh, you know, and you're seeing China push fracking in their uh, push for development, India as well. So gas land, um, unfortunately, has pushed to become gas world. And the, one of the worst aspects of this is the fact that America continues to pursue a Cold War policy uh, with, ex- with uh, respect to energy in Europe. Right. Vladimir Putin controls natural gas for for for, you know, most of Europe. He's supplying natural gas to Europe. There are big pipelines that they're proposing from Russia into Germany. Those are being fought by activists now all across Europe. And the Obama-Biden administration's answer to this and Hillary Clinton was not, let's fight Putin's gas with American renewable energy, which would have been a smart thing to do, right? Start 10 years ago with a Marshall Plan for Europe with renewable energy. No, instead what they did was they locked arms with ExxonMobil, Shell and Chevron and said, we're going to push fracking in Eastern Europe, right? 
which is, you know, a little bit of why you had somebody like Hunter Biden on on the board of a natural gas company in the Ukraine. Um, and you have uh, this hegemony that's happening. So you, you have a war, a cold war that's being played out in Europe. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I am no fan of Vladimir Putin. Um, it should be known Vladimir Putin um, is committing a genocide versus homosexual and lesbian, gay, uh, uh, trans and uh, uh, bisexual people in Chechnya. Vladimir Putin is a d- disgusting despot. It has to be countered. Um, but the best way to counter the tyranny of fossil fuels is through renewable energy, right? You get people off the addiction to fossil fuels. You don't addict them to your fossil fuel, right? That's the same old Cold War saber rattling that has been happening for half a century or more, right? So we're in. So unfortunately, with fracking, you're seeing this globalize. Um, Hillary Clinton was a big part of that. So was Joe Biden. In the second um, term of the Obama administration, or no, it was the first term of the Obama administration. There was called uh, the Global Shale Gas Initiative, where the Obama administration pushed fracking in 30 countries worldwide, often as this Cold War gambit against Vladimir Putin. We don't want that. We want a Green New Deal for the world. Because the truth of the matter is when you invest in fossil fuels, you get tyranny. Tyr- fossil fuels are the fuels of tyranny, whether that's the tyranny of Saddam Hussein, of Vladimir Putin, or George Bush, uh, or frankly, Barack Obama, that is tyranny, right? If you continue in that direction, that's where you're, what, what you're going to get. You're going to get people like Vladimir Putin in power who are committing genocide in Chechnya. Um, by the way, everyone should watch the film Welcome to Chechnya by David France, the incredible documentary. Um, on that subject. So, you know, that's one side of the, the thing that I'm, I'm thinking about a lot today. But I have to say that um, my thinking on this and my activism uh, I really has transformed in a, huge, in a huge way over the last several years. In that, you know, 10 years ago, we were fighting fracking, you know, state by state, fracking field by fracking field, LNG terminal by LNG terminal, all of those local battles, which are so incredibly crucial, because that is how you get all these people with skin in the game about climate change, right? It's the, the climate change fight was never just like, oh, let's talk about the whole planet. No, it's like my backyard is fighting fracking. My backyard is fighting this pipeline. You know, my backyard is fighting these uh, mountaintop removal. So we talked about these things project to project. But as I think about it, I, I really find that this is um, a, a very different a deeper, a deeper struggle that you can't, because as I saw, a lot of communities either won or lost their battle against the fracking industry and then kind of checked out, just kind of like left and walked away. And that's unacceptable. You know, once you've been in the crosshairs of the oil and gas industry, you know, like you're a part of that frontline community. Um, it's not about going back to life as usual. That can't be what we're talking about here. This has to be about transformative change. This has to be about transforming our society and making the connections between the fossil fuel industry and the carceral state, between um, our fracking policy and our immigration laws, between our, our, our um, what is at the root of our understanding of what is a human being on the planet. Because it, you can't just replace fossil fuels with renewable energy and then call it good. Renewable energy is a fundamental sea change in our thinking. We are harvesting energy. We are gathering energy. We are not blowing things up, exploiting, extracting, 
thrusting down into the earth. We are, uh, there is mining certainly associated with renewable energy. And of course, all the mining associated with renewable energy has to be um, subject to the same stringent environmental uh, concerns that we have with fossil fuels. But what I'm trying to say is that we got to change our nature. Uh, we got to change the way 500 years of, of colonialism in America has functioned. We have to change the way we define civilization as you know, the control of fire and the control of burning. We have uh, in front of us um, a transformation as a, as a species to endure, but not, no, 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 that's wrong. Not as a species. As um, uh, on an arc of what is a viral idea, the viral ideas of extractivism, the viral idea that nature is here to serve humanity, the, the idea that, um, that we're in charge and that we can somehow exploit our way an infinite growth capitalist capitalism our way um, into some kind of utopia. That is just not the case. We have to start dealing with balance. We have to start dealing with being cultivators of biodiversity, cultivators of nature, cultivators of the forest, cultivators of the planet, cultivators of the ecosystem. Um, so when you see something like fracking, it's so baldly and absurdly toxic and insane. It's carcinogen dependent process. But we also have to realize like, okay, so here's the best way I can say this. The fracking industry, when we used to come out and we say there, there are 700 toxic chemicals in fracking fluids. And, you know, a vast majority of them are carcinogens. They're neurotoxins. These are the things that you want to inject into the earth. And the gas industry would come back out and they would say, well, look, half of those things that are in fracking fluids are under your sink in your kitchen. And they would use that as a way to justify what they were doing. And so, you know, what's really crazy about this is that they weren't wrong. People are putting fracking fluids down their drain <laughs> every day. And where do those go? They go into the ocean, they go into the earth, they go into the water table. People, the modern suburban home is actually fracking the earth. And until we start to realize that that whole system has to change, there is no you know, that there, can't, there has to be a greater consciousness that comes and gets involved in, right? So um, we have to rebel not only against the fracking well that may be coming to invade your backyard, but the fracking well that actually is your backyard, right? A backyard is a genocide of biodiversity. Your backyard should be a forest. <laughs> it shouldn't be a yard at all where you put chemicals down and all that kind of things, right? So we have to start to understand that the jumping, the, the fracking, the activism on fracking is a, is, a, is a jumping off point. It's a gateway towards a much greater consciousness. And if you ignore that consciousness coming, you're actually jumping back over to the side of the fracking industry, right? You're fracking your mind. You're, because what fracking is, is, is fracturing, right? And when we fracture out the, the oil and gas industry from the rest of the model, from the rest of the system and excuse, you know, the, the subdivision that just took over a forest that we'd like to, that we move into or building any more places that are hundred percent dependent on the automobile, even though we know we can't sustain that. Um, we are fracturing our own consciousness there, right? We're excusing a huge part of what we're doing. So to, to really look at fracking right now, in my view, is to look at this from a much greater uh, perspective of the biodiversity of nature and how um, we have to encourage biodiversity at every turn 
and human beings can do that. Human beings can transform from being extractors and exploiters to being cultivators and gardeners and caretakers, but not if we continue to, you know, participate in this fractured model. And understanding franking at the sort of systemic level and capitalism really at the systemic level, one has to understand that fracking doesn't exist without the finance industry, without the financial yeah. services industry, and without the uh, you know massive financial institutions that have kept this uh, uh, not terribly profitable industry afloat for years and years now. So in fact, in understanding the struggle against fracking, it's also in, in a sense the struggle against Wall Street. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's the underpinning of the whole model. And I'm glad, I'm very glad that you, you, you point that out. I think that um, we are, we're taking on a whole system. And in my new film, I'm making a film right now. Um, I, I've, I've actually just finished it. We're sending it out to festivals right now. So I don't know where it's going to premiere. Um, I really hope so. But I, uh, what happened to me was I got COVID in February. Actually, it was very late January, New York City. Um, 2020. And I didn't know what I had. I just knew it was really, really, really bad. And I felt like I was going to die. It was only later that I found out that it was COVID. And I, I, I found out in the midst of, of, of it. Um, so this was before COVID or we, uh, before it was like a, a, t a panic, you know, but I, I got something and then I thought, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm dying. I don't know what's happening. Um, and I didn't die. I survived. Um, and after that, um, the severe um, trauma that it caused and also tra other traumatic experiences that were, were adding up in my life, I went to a one-room cabin in the woods, uh, a la Henry David Thoreau, and lived there for, for nine months, um, completely in isolation. I would go and do tape my show, Staying Home, uh, two days a week in, an, in a nearby garage where I had an internet connection. But... The majority of spring, summer, uh, and fall, and actually winter, spring, summer, and fall, in that order, um, was spent uh, really doing a deep investigation into what what nature is and what um, what is mankind's or humankind's role in nature, um, and reading Thoreau and, and reading the abolitionists and 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 looking into um, because the forest itself right now is what. Um, uh, what we call a, a mongrel landscape, um, meaning it has invasive species everywhere who, that, or, that originate back with colonialism. And you have the native species that are these, uh, 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 creating a balance out there. And where the invasive species come in, they rip apart that natural balance. So you literally have 500 years of colonialism expressing itself through the plants, right? in what looks like a natural or setting, like in the Pennsylvania forest. And I made a movie about that, <laughs> you know, where I'm trying to figure out like, what is our role there? And what is the, what is the landscape teaching us? And what is it that we have to do now? And I'm, I, the film is called the edge, the edge of nature. Um, and it, it, it really focuses on how we have to transform our thinking and how that, that, nine months in, in, the, in the woods or however long it was, um, just changed who I am. Um, and so that's, that's coming soon. And I, and I can't wait for it to get accepted by some big festival somewhere so I can announce uh, when it's coming out. But I think it's one of, one of the most important works that I've had. So I, when I'm thinking a lot about the model, right, 
um, you know, when the c colonialists came to uh, Manhattan, the Dutch, um, they uh, came upon an island that had all these deer trails on it. And the deer trails, if, you, if anybody you know in the Northeast goes out in the forest, you'll see deer trails, the trails that are made by the deer. And the, the indigenous people who were there, the Lenape, used the deer trails as ways to get from town to town, place to place, you know. But what the Dutch did was they took those deer trails and they widened them. And they widened them. And then those deer trails became streets. They became the streets in New York City. So Broadway was once a deer trail. And that nature is like an x-ray upon which our civilization is, is a hologram. And what we are doing is we continue to widen and widen and widen and widen that avenue for commerce, that avenue uh, for at the time, which was also, of course, uh, slavery and genocide. Um, and that, you know, th that is a process by which America has become, as James Kunstler calls it, the great American automobile slum, where you have self-replicating, invasive economies where every town you have a Home Depot and a Taco Bell and a Burger King and it all is built for cars and it all looks exactly the same. It has no character and has very little quality experience that can happen in that place. So that process um, is still at work today and that's the process we have to talk about reversing. Rewilding in terms of increasing biodiversity and the other part of this is in our cities, it's not biodiversity, it's actual cultural diversity, right? Our cities are being bled white by that process, but we have to now re-encourage a fight against gentrification, which is, of course, the, the city real estate version of colonialism. Um, and we have to start to understand that biodiversity and cultural diversity are being attacked by the same mechanism. And that's what we have to fight back if we want to stay on the planet. If we want to stop climate change. We want to stop extractivism. We also have to stop those forces that are destroying cultural diversity and biodiversity in the same in the same onslaught and i would venture to say that at the bottom of all of that is the source and the cause of all the violence because that is an empty 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 society right why do you pick up an ar-15 and w walk into your place of work and shoot everybody because you've lost contact completely with meaning You've become psychotic because you've lost contact completely with the fact that we are all brothers and sisters, that we are all connected to the planet. That's love. That's meaning. That's our life. That is the, the spiritual mystery that's at the center of our existence. You've lost touch with that, and therefore you just go and you just shoot everybody. American society is based on that emptiness. American society is based on that exploitation. And if we are to try to change the course that we're on, we have to start to understand that community is meaning, that connection is meaning, that art is meaning, that culture is meaning, that diversity and biodiversity are meaning, and that our interconnectedness is the meaning that we're seeking. It's not what you can buy at the Walmart, what you can buy at the Home Depot, the, the kind of car that you're driving. You know what I mean? That's what, we're, that's what American consumerism is based on, and that's why we're at the end of the peaceful part of that I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think actually it's never been peaceful. It's never been peaceful. This is just one of those moments where you can actually see the sausage getting made, right? You can see how the forces of these authoritarians, um, these authoritarian forces are coming to put, you know, putting America back together again after Humpty Dumpty falls off the cliff, right? 
this has happened throughout American history, whether it was George Washington and campaigns against the Native Americans, or it was Woodrow Wilson enforcing a draft because Wall Street wanted to get into World War I and putting Eugene V. Debs in prison while he was running for president, right? Or it's watching what's happening now, where you have the police state always trying to defend itself in one or another means. Um, and uh, so I, I think that our movement has to be focused on um, understanding that that is the fight. It is not just a fight against the fracking well in our backyard so that our kids can go to school in our suburbs. The fight is against those forces that are destroying the, the biodiversity and cultural diversity at once. And there has to be a reckoning with the history of this country. There has to be a reckoning with the emptiness, meaninglessness that is at the core of the value structure that we're currently living in. So we're up against the clock. If I could just squeeze in one final question, Josh, you've been talking about fracking and uh, essentially the polluting of our environment, the polluting of the world that we live in. And, and, and in a sense, there is a very real form of pollution that uh, you know these type of issues create. But there's another form of pollution, and I know you've been talking about it a lot recently, one that is in some ways just as significant and just as deadly in terms of its impact on our uh, lives and on this world that we live in. And that is the pollution of disinformation mm. disinformation like fracking like the oil uh, industry disinformation has seemingly polluted every corner of our society and it really raises the question of what does it mean to understand the world in this yeah. time when so many people many of whom have so much power are yeah. simply completely disconnected from it well you know i that's my obsession over the last couple of years. Um, my, my, my book, The Truth Has Changed, and my performance, um, The Truth Has Changed, which we were also going to start. Um, we, we did a, um, a version of it for the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis. Um, it did really well, and so we're going to make that available to the general public um, very, very soon. Uh, you know, I think we saw um, a very, very horrible chapter in American history when viral misinformation, right? The kind of viral misinformation that you see on Facebook uh, that elected Donald Trump, that continues to push conspiracy theories and uh, push um, so much of American discourse into the lunatic fringe. You saw that viral misinformation become viral misinformation, right? Misinformation about the virus. Hydroxychloroquine. And oh, we can just drink bleach and everything will be magically cured, you know, and we don't have to wear masks. You know, that viral misinformation has a 400,000 person body count at this moment, right? Um, I think it was Deborah Burks in the New York Times said that everything past the first 100,000 deaths could probably have been stopped with coronavirus. But it was Donald Trump that said, you know, um, you don't have to wear a mask. We can inject bleach into your body. I mean, it was just so insane. The insanity um, caused more death than any war in the history of American wars, right? In terms of the death toll of Americans, not of, of the other people, unfortunately. Um, you know, so uh, we're at a place right now where those people who don't, 
who believe that misinformation and that whole system of misinformation is holding us hostage. Um, we are being held hostage by the small uh, minority of people. Let's say they're 30%. I mean, John Dean was on my show. John Dean, the, the, the lawyer that uh, brought down Richard Nixon from within the Nixon administration said that he thought that 30% of a population, according to his research, um, was going to be authoritarian, comfortable with authoritarianism, right? And John Dean talks about how that 30% has to stay 30%. Because if it starts to boil over into 51%, then boom, you have somebody like Donald Trump get elected or Hitler. Um, and though that group of people right now are, is so entrenched because of that misinformation, because the truth has changed, the way we get truth, truth has changed, um, that that is the dangerous, very, very dangerous state that we're in. I would say that, you know, we are right now in, in, at war. You have the fossil fuel industry at war with nature. And you have this military, paramilitary force um, that are, you know, have tons of AR-15s and body armor and battle gear, people like Kyle Rittenhouse, um, every other day or twice a day at this point, right, popping off and shooting tons of people. And who are they? What are they doing? They're out there fighting a race war. They're fighting a war against the rest of us. That when I mean a race war, I mean a war for the race that they perceive they are versus the race that they perceive we are. And by we, I mean sort of everybody else. That they, they believe themselves to be, you know, a diff, of a different ilk than everyone else. And therefore, it's like, go out and shoot them all. Um, that construct of race is also a, a, a primary misinformation, right? Race is a construct. The fact that, you, that poor whites and, 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 and poor everybody else have been separated by this idea of race is... Um, the one of the original pieces of misinformation that this country was founded upon right it also leads to a lot of exterminationist talk i don't know how much you hear about how much you've heard that josh but i mean the most common refrain you hear from some of these trumpist types is ah they ought to just round them up and just shoot them you heard people say that at trump rallies about the border yeah and that kind of rhetoric is is it's not just rhetoric it, it indicates something pretty profound i think well my experience of, 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 well, I've been arrested so many times. Um, my, and, and my experience of being arrested in places like New York or D.C. or whatever is usually that the police don't live where they're policing, right? They are like an occupying army. They come from the suburbs and they go into the city and they treat the city as if it's like the jungle, you know, some other place. And that, I, that is part of this war that we're in the middle of, right? I was saying we're at war. The fossil fuel industry is at war with nature. But also, that 30%, whatever you want to call it, that, that John Dean brilliantly uh, talks about as Trump's authoritarian followers, John Dean says that's this certain part, part of the population. Those people um, are, we're having, <laughs> I mean, how many gunfights are there in Fallujah daily versus how many there are in America, right? And who are, who's pulling the trigger? It's the police, 
and it's the terrorists, the white supremacist terrorists that they always call them lone wolves. But they're not lone wolves any more than the guy who straps the suicide bomb to himself and blows himself up in, in, a, in the town square somewhere is a lone wolf. They're part of an ideology. They are part of a, of a, of a philosophy and they're being trained to do so. And they're fetishizing weaponry. Um, they're fetishizing violence. They have t-shirts and slogans and Facebook pages and they're being encouraged. Um, and they are at war with the United States. They're at war with the rest of us. They don't believe that we are a democracy. They don't care, but they, they believe that, that Joe Biden stole the election. So, you know, this misinformation, uh, I can't even, like I said, I don't know how we heal these divides. We have to try. We have to start. Um, we have to try. Um, and I think that at the same time, you have unbelievably new, sophisticated, like incredible articulation and thinking within our movement that's happening right now, right? The, the whole idea of emergent strategies of Adrian Marie Brown, the whole idea of intersectionality, um, the, the way the Sunrise Movement and Fridays for Future, um, the, the youth are coming and saying, we want our future back. There is an enormous, beautiful depth of philosophy and stuff that's happening in, in the activist movement. And there's an incredible dearth and depravity that's happening on the other side of that. Um, with people who are so nihilistic and, and yeah, shoot them at the border. Um, and I would also say uh, there's another part to this, um, which I have really huge problem with. Um, and it's, it's sort of like the neoliberal or liberal sort of doppelganger or inverse side of the coin to just exterminate everybody, which is when environmentalists, so-called environmentalists say the earth would be just better off without humans on it. When they say, People are a virus. I think of myself in the woods. I think of my, my friends in the Amazon, my, the, indigenous, the incredible indigenous teachers that I've had the ability to work with uh, because of, of, the, of the film and the, the stand at, at Standing Rock. I ask myself, with any of these friends of mine in the Amazon, you know, who've been literally planted the Amazon, you know, 20,000 years ago, whatever it was, would they call themselves a virus? Would they say the earth would be better off without humans on it? No. So if you're out there saying human beings are a virus, the earth would be better off. Well, there is a reason why you're saying that. It's called ecofascism. And ecofascism and fascism go hand in hand, right? Because if we're a virus, right, and all we should be doing is like jettisoning ourselves off to Mars with Elon Musk, um, which is a whole nother topic, then we are in fact letting ourselves off the hook we have no responsibility, and we have allowed humanity to be defined by the Nazis. We have allowed humanity to be defined by Christopher Columbus. We have allowed humanity to be defined by the exploiters and the extractors and the murderers and the genociders. That is not who I am. That is not my definition. I am not a virus. I am not here for that. We have to understand humanity has a, has a very, very different possible definition. And that is where environmentalism, all environmentalism comes from indigenous philosophy, which is that we are a part of the earth. We are a part of nature. And when you're out there as the sunrise movement, when you're out there in the anti-fracking movement, when you're out there in the climate change movement, when you're out there 
in the um, movement against white supremacy and the movement against police brutality, when you're out there as an anti-racist, you are the earth rising up to defend itself. You are a, pr a part of nature rising up to defend nature. You are rising up to defend cultural and biological uh, diversity, biodiversity of nature, cultural diversity of our, of, our, of our world. We are nature rising up to defend itself in our movement. We are not a virus. So when a lot of the sort of cool lefty set is all like, oh, wow, we're terrible. You know, we're, we're, we're bad for the planet. You know, that is not what I believe. I believe that we can be a, a, the keystone species. We can be the species that holds the planet together rather than tears it apart. Um, that's where my thinking has been, you know, and that's the, I guess what I'm trying to articulate here on this, in this interview is, is that's a philosophical shift I think that we need to make, um, you know, as a movement. And, I, and I'm, I'm grappling with it to, to a great degree just to find the words to express it right now. You know? I think, I think you, uh, you said it very well. And uh, thank you so much for bringing up the eco-fascism piece at the end there, because eco-fascism is exactly where the right-wing extremists are headed once the reality of climate change and climate change denial is no longer tenable. Right. Because once, once climate change denialism falls away, eco-fascism becomes the guiding ideology of the far right. And you watch how quickly they will talk about uh, uh, right. population control and all of those other type of issues from an environmental perspective. Well, that's the big problem I had with that movie by Michael Moore. He said, you know, renewable energy doesn't work and it's all a lie, which, is, which was, of course, an absolute falsehood to be putting in a supposed documentary. But then they said, well, it's all just about we have to control the population, control the population, control the population. I don't know. When white guys from Michigan start talking about population control, I get nervous because... You know, <laughs> we all know what population they're talking about controlling. That's what's under, underwriting that entire argument. So, yeah, look, we can't. If, if you have become so absorbed, if, you, if your blinders are so complete that you cannot see a different definition for humanity than the one of the exploiters, then I would really encourage you on a deep level to explore the idea of humanity as a part of nature, of humanity as the caretakers of nature, as was the case on this planet for hundreds of thousands of years before Western civilization. We have that DNA too, and we have to start to obey that DNA um, and reject the principles of infinite growth and of Elon Musk and of, of Jeff Bezos and of going to space after we've destroyed this planet. No we have to start to understand that we are a part of the planet. We are a part of nature um, and that the earth is um, uh, our, our um, uh, fundamental, fundamentally our partner. Uh, that is what I would love to see us really think about. So if you, if you were in the anti-fracking movement and you, and you, we won, please start to understand that that is a fracture of your consciousness. If, if we're, if you know what I mean, we need to go out there and, um, continue the work um and that means showing up to the protests it means continuing to do all the brilliant things that this movement did, has done uh, for so long so much more we could discuss and say but i've already kept you well over no the no time. it's I great it's great thank you so much I, I i always appreciate it when someone is like asking me for an interview and i'm 
really, really trying to <laughs> work out ideas at the same time. <laughs> so this is it. This is the raw, you know, this is what I'm trying to, I'm trying to think through and I, I, I really appreciate it. No, I really appreciate you coming on. And of course, uh, we at Counterpunch, of course, appreciate all of your work, Josh. Josh Fox, uh, joshfoxfilm.com is the website at Josh Fox Film on Twitter. Do follow all of the work and do make staying home with Josh Fox part of your normal uh, podcast rotation. Josh, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch and chatting with us tonight. Oh, I appreciate it so much. Thanks a lot. Listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again next week.